very much for the kind words, Tad. I wouldn't be flattering you if I said the same sort of thing and then went on and on some more. So I can't um, emphasize enough, I guess, if it's possible to reemphasize for everyone here some of the stuff that Tad said. I was just thinking how long you've been in my life and kind of a role of a mentor discipler. And it's been about seven years, I guess now. So it's probably about time to cut it because we know seven's a perfect number, but, uh, <laughs> um, but no, I've had a lot of people kind of track with me and, and be involved in my life at different points and, and for different seasons and times, but, uh, no one that's been as deeply involved in life and that sort of role for as long in my life. And so, I'm really, really thankful for you. And in many ways, I'm very indebted to you, Tad. So thanks. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord, you're good. We thank you for your goodness. And um, God, has open up the word here. Um, I just pray that uh, the word may go forth and that I might not in any way uh, bumble or jumble it up. Um, I believe that the word inherently has power. I believe what the scriptures say, Lord, that the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating even a joints and marrow, soul and spirit, um, judges the thoughts and motives of the heart. And so I pray that do that. So for those who need to be challenged, that may they be challenged, those who need to be encouraged, that they may be encouraged. Um, and Lord, just, uh, yeah, allow me to be a mouthpiece for you, um, to hide behind the cross. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and uh, we're just your servants. And so... Allow that to come through. Um, thank you, Lord. Love you and praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Cool. Jason said uh, he liked the first title slide. If you like the rest of the slides and kind of the aesthetics behind it, um, thank McKaylee, not me. And remember that you're also comparing it to Tad, who normally isn't the highest in aesthetics, but that's okay. Um, so Mark 8 what we're going to be going through. Um it's a miracle passage. Jesus feeds the 4,000. The second miracle is obviously that we as a refuge are now for two weeks in a row sticking with the book of Mark. So I know it would be a third miracle if Silas stays quiet this low. He's already out of the room. That miracle hasn't happened. So we're going to hop into Mark 8 and we're going to be reading Mark 8, 1 to 10. I don't have a title. I couldn't come up with anything catchy. So we're just going to go ahead and hop in. The passage, again, is the feeding of the 4,000. I actually don't have it up here. So I guess if you have your Bible, whether it be book form or electronic form, uh, go ahead and open it up. It, but before we read it, though, I do want to say, be on guard all the time. Whenever you read a passage that you've read a lot, which once you start to become a serious student of the Bible, you should have read most of the passages a decent amount of time. Be on guard against familiarity, right? Familiarity can really be dangerous because we just kind of let our eyes gloss over and we just say, oh, I've read that, understand the story. You know, it could have been five years. I colored a picture of Jesus multiplying a bunch of bread, third grade in Sunday school. I know that passage. Well, do, do you? And do, do, do you think that God really doesn't have something that he might want to speak to you today? And so, yeah, Jesus is going to multiply a bunch of bread. That's pretty cool, right? But But, but just tune your ears to what might stick out and what God might want to say specifically through this passage as we read it. So I'm going to go ahead and start in verse one, and I'll just uh, read through the text. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of, the, some of them have come a long distance. His disciple answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and they were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. 
after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Hmm. I was wondering if I'd prayed already. I had, but let's go ahead and hop in. Obviously, if this passage sounds kind of somewhat familiar, it's because it was just a few chapters earlier that a miracle of similar nature, of course, took place. Jesus did this whole multiplication of bread and fish thing in chapter six of the book of Mark. And uh, if you guys remember, oh, I don't know, it was probably a few months ago, I think, that uh, Jason actually preached on that passage. And so, again, it's kind of just the same thing. So, I mean, if you can remember that, we should probably just put a replay of Jason's message on here. Same sort of message, right? No, no, no. Um, we're going to go through it um, very slowly here. But it is kind of interesting, right? That Think about this. Just This is recorded again. I say record again, it's a different event, right? It, 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 it's, a, it's a different thing in time and people. But it's interesting that it's very similar. And, you know, Mark and also Matthew, who documents this feeding of the 4,000 as well, both found it as worth spilling some ink over, right? Taking up some uh, room in specific scripts that they wrote on. Um, just kind of interesting that, you know, we get this in as well. And so, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of just real quick look at the feeding of the 4,000 that we just read, and then just make a few quick comparisons and also a few contrasting points that just might be helpful to keep in mind from the feeding of the 5,000 passage, which is just two, two chapters earlier. And so, as we compare these passages, if I can uh, get something, do I click spacebar or what do I click here? There we go. Cool. So the feeding of the 4,000 has some similarities to the feeding of the 5,000. Surprise, surprise. Just figured it'd be helpful to make a note of a few of those. Um, first off, it's interesting. Both of them specifically use this word compassion. It's this word that we've heard a lot. Both passages, both texts specifically mention that it's out of compassion this stirring in the guts, right? This being moved in the guts or the bowels that compels Jesus to do that. Both of them document that. And both Jesus gives thanks for the very, very small amount of bread and fish that he has before he does the multiplication. He looks up to God and he gives thanks. Obviously, there's something we can learn there, regardless of what we have, even if it's a small thing. It would be people that give thanks, right? Obviously, the bread and the fish are multiplied. That's kind of the nature and the essence of the miracle. And uh, the disciples also, I couldn't think of a more fitting term, look like buffoons. And if you're wondering what that word means, it means ludicrous or like a clown. They look quite like clowns in both of these stories and both of these instances. Okay, And yes, that is how you spell buffoon. I actually thought it was different and it had the little red wavy line underneath, so I had to change it. Um, but... We're going to go ahead and look at a few differences from these passages. So first off, the feeding of the 5,000, interestingly enough, it's actually the only miracle, the only miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels, other than the resurrection, of course, which is kind of the climactic miracle of the Christian faith, thus makes a lot of sense. But the feeding of the 5,000, not what we're looking at now, the other one, Mentioned in all four Gospels. This one's just mentioned twice in Mark, as we just read, um, 8 and Matthew as well, I believe, 14. Um, another difference, it's just kind of minor here, but what we just read, Jesus is the one who brings up feeding them. They've been there for a while, and he's like, hey, don't you think we should probably feed these people? He's the one who kind of brings it up and mentions it. Uh, and the feeding of the 5,000, it's the disciples that bring up, hey, we should feed these people. It's kind of an interesting thing to ponder as well. Why might that have been the case? Uh, they start with a different amount. Nothing huge, but uh, feeding the 4,000, they start with seven loaves and a few small fish. Feeding the 5,000, they start with five loaves and two fish. This one's interesting. And this is why I think they maybe start to become a little bit more significant. The feeding of the 5,000, they're just there for like one day, I mean, one day is still a decent amount of time, but it, it's a shorter amount of time that they're there listening to Jesus teach and preach out in the wilderness. 
This one, hopefully you catched it. They were there for three days listening to Jesus as he was teaching and as he was instructing and sharing with them. That's a decent amount of time that they just, well, were absent of food. A longer amount of time that the crowd of the 4,000 was willing to listen to Jesus than the crowd of the 5,000 was willing to listen to Jesus. They were in different places. And it kind of takes a little careful reading and some intuitiveness and some thoughtfulness as we look at the text to get this. Um, But for the feeding of 5,000, Jesus is talking to Jews. He's in Jewish country. He's in Bethsaida. Okay, that should be a town that hopefully rings a bell if you read through the storyline much of the Gospels, right? Comes up a lot. It's actually where almost all of the disciples are from. And so they're kind of in a home area. They're in an area where people are really familiar with the whole Yahweh thing, Old Testament thing. And then Jesus pops on the scene. That's who Jesus is talking to when he feeds the 5,000. And when after a day, they're already getting really restless. When he feeds the 4,000, he's in a different area. He's on the other side of, think, Bible Trek, the Sea of Galilee. Right? He's in Gentile country. He's on the east side of Galilee. Uh, I didn't mention that here in Mark, but if you look at the passage that Tad preached on last week, um, they were in Gentile country in the area of the Decapolis. That rings a bell. Okay, think Legion. Okay, Mark chapter 5, right? That really crazy account where... Jesus runs across this uh, super demonized man, also in Gentile country. Okay, Jesus is back in that area. So these are kind of the, the pagans. These are kind of the hot rodders, right? People with tattoos. These are the wild people, the pig eaters, right? That's who Jesus is talking to Yeah, when he preaches for three days, then feeds them. Uh, for the feeding of the 4,000, it doesn't specifically say how they respond. So it'd be presumptive to be like, yeah, they like loved it and everything. But I mean, it, it seems as if all indications were um, for a few different reasons we can kind of piece together. There was a somewhat relative positive response. I mean, they were there for three days and, and they didn't seem to be uh, picking up stones and angry at the guy by any means, but just says Jesus dismissed him. For the feeding of the 5,000, am I pointing at it right? No, for the feeding of the 5,000, right? Um, John chapter 6, that rings a bell. John chapter 6, okay, is one of the four places that this feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned. And it kind of expands a little bit more on the response of the crowd than the other accounts do. And in John 6, we learn that um, they don't exactly have the best response. And they kind of don't know what to do with this whole thing. And they recognize Jesus is pretty cool. I mean, he fed a lot of people, so that's awesome. Like, maybe he's the prophet, and they're probably referring to the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. The pro- but then it says that they intended to make him king by force. Not according to plan. Not really what Jesus was probably looking for. Not what he was exactly wanting or intending. Not the response that they probably should have had. They wanted to make him king by force. If you remember, it said he needed to essentially dismiss himself. Kind of need to get the heck out of there. So as opposed to dismissing the crowds, he kind of had to get out. And then if you remember that same crowd follows him. And that's where you get his really well-known teaching, John 6, I am the bread of life. And they don't respond too well to that. And if you remember, it says a lot of them ended up leaving Jesus. It says the hard teaching, we're gone. We're done with this thing. And then they leave. And so, the crowd that was fed in the feeding of the 5,000 seemed to have, I guess what we could call an improper, not the best response. Definitely a lot more decidedly negative than the crowd of the 4,000. So now that we just kind of have some interesting pieces kind of in place there, I want to go ahead and I want to look at three of the main, well, people, groups involved in this story. So first off, we have Jesus. Okay. We're going to look a little bit at What did Jesus do in this story? And surprisingly, normally what Jesus does warrants a thumbs up. It's good. It's a a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's something we can say, hey, we should learn from and we should emulate. That's an example to follow. We're also going to look at what the crowd did. And we're actually going to give them a thumbs up as well. Positive thing, a plus thing. 
And then we're also going to look at what the disciples did. And man, sometimes they get the thumbs down, they get it today. That's what happens when you act like buffoons. And so we're going to kind of evaluate and look at the role that each of these three different Jesus, the crowd, and disciples played in this story. So first off, what did Jesus did? Jesus did compassion. Okay, And this is something that I pointed out earlier. I think it's in verse three there as we read through it. Okay, But it specifically says, verse two, sorry, Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. Jesus, there's a lot of people, 4,000 plus of them. Most likely it's just 4,000 men. They probably had some wives and some kids and probably more people. Yeah, I have compassion for all of them. What's compassion? Well, again, I mentioned the Greek term earlier, and I know it's one that Tad talks a lot about, and it's a cool word. So we probably, if we remember any Greek word, other than like logos, normally remember that one. It's the cool one, right? Again, it means moved in the guts. But what does compassion mean? I like this definition here. It means that you see a need. Something happens in you. That's the arrow part. Then you respond. Not just you see a need and, man, that's really an issue. That's really something that needs to be taken care of. That person really needs some help, Say a prayer for him. Hopefully someone comes down the road. Oh, the parable of Samaritan, right? Is two people who did that. And the one who had compassion is the one who did something. He responded, right? And so that's what compassion is, is it's seeing a need and then it's responding. Okay? And that's how we're called to live and function on the day-to-day. It's supposed to be our modus operandi as Christians, and just quick little snippet or story. Um, for those of you who know us, we have a young lady that's actually living in our home with us. She's one that kind of has rubbed shoulders with and is involved with a lot of people in the church. And so you might guys might know her. Okay. Um, but I think it would have been last summer. Um, she kind of had a bunch of things that stacked up. She was in a bad living situation, roommate situation, a bunch of things really just kind of were going against her and she needed a place to be and a place to stay. And so my lovely wife, McKaylee, comes to me and goes, hey, we, our, our friend, she's really in a pickle and in a bind in a lot of ways. And she's in a tough spot. We need to do something. And so it wasn't even that drastic of a thing. We're like, I mean, we've got an extra room in our house, right? Let's just open the door and let her stay with us, let her live with us for a month. And now it's been seven months and it's great. And uh, we really love her staying with us, but that's what compassion is, right? I was telling Michaela, like, that's a great example, right? You just saw a need and say, let's do some, let's, let's somehow do something. And so we've also tried to help her in a few other different ways. And of course, the ultimate help that we can give someone is spiritual, right? And she's not a follower of Jesus. And it's been so fun. We've been able to have conversations with her about the Lord and, and recently, uh, this young lady's actually just begun reading through the book of Matthew. And so so be praying for it. We're actually going to be having a discussion on the book of Matthew here soon. Um, but that's what compassion is, saying, hey, someone has a need. Let's, let's, let's do something. What can we round up? How can we help them? In, in what way can we do something along the family? Dad goes, that's kind of, I mean, I know a lot of people now are like stepping up and helping and doing all sorts of things, giving rides and stuff. But I mean, to be honest, it wouldn't have happened if at the beginning, Tad wouldn't have said, hey, let's do something. He was kind of the spearhead for it all. That's what compassion is. And we see Jesus do that here. So this is a passage from Mark 6. This is not, of course, the text I just read from, but this is from the text of the Jesus's feeding of the 5,000. And it says, when Jesus landed and he saw the large crowd, the 5,000-ish that he was going to feed, it said he had compassion on them. Okay? He saw a need. He saw they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's a really cool description Jesus used. I really love that, right? Like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep are obviously pretty aimless, wandering animals, and if I was to be a sheep, 
I'd want to make sure I had a good shepherd. I'd prefer that over not having a shepherd, right? And Jesus goes, man, when I saw all these people, this whole crowd, they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began. Is he going to respond? Is he, is he going to do something? Well, yeah, we know he is. I, of course, it's Jesus, right? He always gets the thumbs up. He always says what's good and perfect and right. So he began doing what? What did he begin doing? A lot of times when people are in need, do we know how to help them? Do we know the best way to approach helping that person that's harassed and sheep, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd? What did Jesus do? Did he, you know, organize some program for them? Did he try and give them a bunch of money as a financial gift? Did he, these, these are good things, but Jesus realized the first thing they needed was what? This is interesting. So he began teaching them. Began teaching it. He realized that for these people, their greatest need was to be taught by him, Jesus. We always think that when we're in a bind and we're kind of that person that's like a sheep without a shepherd, that what we really need is a change of our outward circumstances. But Jesus showed, no, what you really need, I have compassion, I'm moved in the guts, I'm going to respond. What you need is you need to be taught by me. And so here's what I want to tell you guys. If you're someone, whether you're saved or unsaved, Christian or not Christian, and you feel like, yeah, I'm kind of that person that I feel like I'm harassed and helpless. I feel like I'm wandering and aimless. I'm like a sheep without a shepherd. The number one thing you need is to be taught by Jesus. In some area, in some capacity, that's what you need. When you feel like you are in a pit, you primarily need to be taught by Jesus. When your heart is in turmoil, guess you need to be taught by Jesus. When your life is steeped in anxiety, oh, if I could just change this circumstance, get a new job, or man, get this person out of my life. No, it's not changing your outward circumstances. You need to be taught by Jesus. When you're trying to become the best spouse you can be and you're kind of not the best at it, you need to be taught by Jesus. When you're trying to figure out how to be an employee that functions well in your workspace, surprise, you need to be taught by Jesus. When you figure out how to do some of these things Tad talks about, being a soul winner, discipling men and women, counseling, leading people into freedom, you need to be taught by Jesus. All of us in some capacity for something going on in our life, we need to be taught by Jesus. So Jesus' compassion here in this passage in Mark 6, and again, remember, this is where he fed 5,000. So I'm not just going to something random. Again, this, this is a feeding and a multiplication miracle. It's the other one that he does. His compassion led him to an informed wisdom-filled response. Sometimes we don't even know how to respond because we don't even have our head on straight. We're not seeking God, asking for wisdom. We're just like, oh, we really want to love people. Yeah, but you need to do it in an informed, wisdom-filled way. So seek the Lord, right? And here Jesus says, what they need is they need to be taught. What's crazy is that Jesus addressed the spiritual thing he taught these people. And then he multiplied the bread. Notice that's how he did it in the passage we just looked at as well in Mark 8. Jesus fed the people spiritually first. And then he fed them physically. So don't miss this point here. Don't miss this point. The point is, it is more important that your soul is fed spiritually even then that your body is fed physically. Again, it is more important for each and every person here that your soul is fed spiritually than that your body is fed physically. So let's go ahead and look at Jesus talking about this in a few other places. He showed it in how he first addressed the crowd, 
of the 4,000. What did he do? He taught him for how long? Three days. Then he feeds him. But he taught him for three days. Let's look at this in a few other places. Matthew 6, 33. I don't know. I, uh, cool. 31 to 33. Um, this is a passage primarily about this idea of worry and anxiety, but here's what Jesus said. Notice some of these words that are bold here. So do not worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink or what will we wear? Don't be primarily, don't be firstly focused on those things. If so, you're like a pagan. You're like an anti-God person. For the pagans run after all those things. That's what they're consumed with, meeting their physical needs. And a lot of times not even meeting our physical needs. Almost all of us can have our physical needs met. It's getting what we think we physically want. Not just a roof over our head for most people. It's a nicer roof for just getting a car. It's we want a nicer car, right? For most of us, that's what causes all the anxiety anyway, right? Is we want more physical stuff. Jesus goes, yeah, if you're just thinking about those things all the time, if you're constantly consumed with those things, your mind's wrapped around those things, you're ra- running after those things. Yeah, you're, you're doing what the pagans do. You're doing what the anti-God people do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, the spiritual stuff. Oh, that. But- then you'll get the other stuff as well, right? You'll, you'll get the other stuff. It, it, it'll come, right? You'll get that stuff as well. That's what the miracle is. That's what the miracle is, is Jesus is teaching the people. They're getting the spiritual stuff. And he goes, uh, by the way, I know you guys need food. I knew you're, you were going to pass out and die. I couldn't let that happen. So I need to make sure I feed you. Here you go. Get your food. Whew, awesome. Way to go. Let's see this. Jesus on food. Isn't that a great title? I couldn't think of a better title for this slide. We're just going through a few more verses in which Jesus is talking about this kind of dynamic of, of food. And he's oftentimes using food to talk about not necessarily just this physical pizza that we eat, or I don't even know what we're having for lunch today, the sandwich that you're going to have, but he's actually using it in a spiritual way. Hopefully this passage looks familiar. Matthew 4, 3 to 4. This is also um, from Luke 4, Jesus, right, being tempted in the wilderness. Okay, the tempter Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Make food for yourself. Jesus has been 40 days since you ate. Sure, you're hungry. And I know you can. Jesus answered. And this is a quotation from, anyone know Bible knowledge people? Where's this quotation from? Deuteronomy 8, right? Jesus has three quotations. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, okay? Two of them are from 8. Anyway, um, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me ask you, do you guys think that way? Do you guys think that what is far more important each and every day you wake up is that you are fed spiritually and that your soul is filled to the overflowing? And before your physical appetite and the grumbling belly is given your Pop-Tart or your Fruit Loops or whatever the heck you eat for breakfast. For real, which one's more important? Like somewhere to just like, you know, watch you throughout a day. Would they say, yeah, he's way more into and about filling his spirit with the good stuff? Or would they say, ah, no, he's way more about filling his belly with the good stuff. Which would it be? Jesus says, Right here, he realizes, ah, yeah, bread's okay, and I'm going to have to eat it at some point. I need to keep living. But here's the deal. I don't live on just that. Right? What truly feeds me is the word of God. That's why he says, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Eh? Keep going. John 4. This is after his account with the woman at the well. His disciples come to him. And they urge him, they say, Rabbi, eat, eat, Jesus, eat food. We went and got something from the village for you, right? We've got Arby's, we've got whatever, eat something. Here it is. He said, I have food to eat. You know nothing about, like, where are you hiding it? His disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? I mean, maybe he ate while we were gone. That was what occurred right before verse 31 here, right? Is they, they went to town to get some food and maybe hey, while we are gone. Here's what Jesus says. My food is to do the will of the father and to finish his work. He goes, what sustains me? What's food? Food is what sustains us. It's what gives us life. And Jesus goes, what sustains me and what gives me life is to do what God has sent me to do, right? So Jesus is just always using food, which is this physical thing, okay? And he's using it to show us 
deeper spiritual truths. Hopefully you see that here. One more. And again, this is that John 6 passage, okay? This is after he just fed the huge group of the 5,000, which were very improperly motivated people. And then Jesus says to them, okay, because they're wanting more food. They just had a buffet. They're following him because they want another big buffet. And Jesus goes, you're missing the point. I'm the bread of life. Okay, what do you mean by that, Jesus? Right? Obviously, clearly, you don't look like a loaf of bread. What do you mean, Jesus? He says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So how do we make sure that we never go hungry? That we constantly be coming to Jesus. That daily, regularly, we're presenting ourselves before Jesus. According to this verse, if we do that, we will never go hungry. And Jesus is talking about our soul, our spirit, our heart, what's in us. We won't be longing for a bunch of other things that we can't even get our hands on anyway. Because if you just come to me, then I will fill you and I will satisfy you. That's what he says here. And so Jesus is constantly hitting on this idea, right? That again, what's far more important for you fill your bellies is that you fill your soul. And so what I'm telling you here, Christians today, far more important than you filling your bellies is filling your soul. So the question, of course, is, well, okay, Ty, how is that done? Practically, what does that mean? Well, most people, of course, in this church have been coming here for a while. We know what that means. That means that we meet with the Lord in prayer and that we get our nose in the word. That we get alone with God and we get into his presence. How do we do that? Primarily through prayer and the word. That's how we do it. Okay. And yeah, you can feed yourself a little bit spiritually through other stuff, right? Listen to some podcasts or some books or some sermons, okay? But the meat and potatoes, those are good desserts. The meat and potatoes of this meeting with God, okay, is getting the word and be people of prayer. And so actually I, I heard, um, I can't remember who this was, but I think it, it might've been John Piper. I don't remember. But um, at one point or another, um, it was a pastor in a sermon, like I said, I think it was old JP, but he mentioned how he really just took this verse, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's like, what if I just like kind of did something as a reminder of that in the real physical realm? And so he made this principle. I think he said that he still lives by it. Maybe I'm wrong, but he would not eat anything until he got his adequate time meeting with the Lord for that day. Is it a sin if he would have, or if any of you do? No, okay, don't hear me wrong. What he was saying is he was doing something physically to remind him of this higher ultimate truth. So he just say, you know what? I'm going to do the most important thing first. Until I do that most important thing first, I'm not going to do the other thing that I need. And he's still alive, okay? He hasn't died, if you were wondering, okay? So, you know, maybe at the end of the day, it ends up making sure that you get your time in so you can finally in the afternoon eat supper, whatever it might be. Probably not a bad thing, okay? But it was something actually that I was like, it's really ingenious. And so I did that uh, a couple weeks ago for a short bit. It was just really helpful. Again, I don't think anyone needs to live their whole life that way, right? But it's just this helpful reminder of, man, feeding myself spiritually is far more important, okay? I can't miss out on that. I can't do everything else and miss out on that. This past week, um, McKaylee and I were out of Manhattan. We went to um, small town, middle of nowhere, western Kansas, uh, for me to do some work selling fire extinguishers as I do and things alike. And so we were out there. I had a ton to do work-wise. I had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, I'm in this class that I'm taking on Islam, the Quran. So doing a lot of reading for that. And uh, of course, you know, in terms of just spending time with Michaeli and the kids, and there was a bunch of other things that we were trying to get figured out logistically with a new house that we're getting ready to move into. And so there was a lot. And I was reminded when I went out there, I'm like, Ty, remember what you're preaching on Sunday? You better make sure that you live like what you're going to preach on. Don't be the hypocrite, right? You need to live as if it's far more important for you to do the spiritual thing first than to do all the other stuff that stacks up. And so this past week, I was like, Lord, please <laughs> help me. I need your grace to make sure that, you know, I'm really on my game this week um, because there was far more than normal that was vying for my attention. Um, 
but it's just sometimes, you know, to do that. Next slide. Okay. To be someone who feeds yourself spiritually before you feed yourself physically. Um, sorry, but if you're in this church for a while, you can't know this. Um, being spiritual, for some reason, some people have this thing in their mind that being spiritual is like really easy. And it's almost like sometimes lazy. And it's really unspiritual to work hard. Like hard work is like the devil. Right? And then we just, we, you know, dress it up and we call it legalism, right? Hard work, right? Um, I love the quote, right? Hard work isn't legalism, earning is. But that's something that I'm constantly trying to convey to young men that I disciple is uh, you don't need to work hard at all to get saved and get into the kingdom. But if you want to grow and become a mature, effective disciple, yeah, there's a lot of hard work that's involved. It takes diligence, it takes discipline, and it takes hard work to feed yourself spiritually. Because if you've got a job that starts at eight and you need to take care of your family for a little bit in the morning, what does that mean? Well, that means you need to set your alarm a little bit earlier and you need to get up earlier than you like. I don't know anyone that likes getting up at four or five o'clock. I don't know that person. But I know people who do it because they realize they need to. I don't know anyone who likes to maybe go to bed earlier and skip out on stuff that they otherwise would have liked to have done so they can get enough sleep so they can adequately wake up in the morning and get their time with the Lord. But I know people who do because they realize they need to. Their soul will shrivel up and die if they don't get the time with the Lord that they need. And so I was, I was, one of my favorite quotes is, is from a guy, Leonard Ravenhill, right? Talk about a guy who just uh, really laid it all out there for his life, right? Why revival tarries? He's a guy that just like biting, cutting line after another. Okay. And this is one of my favorite quotes of his. An experience of God that costs nothing, does nothing, and is worth nothing. Because reality is after people realize like, hey, Ty, it kind of takes a while. It's kind of hard. It takes, it takes some hard work to do this whole feed yourself spiritually thing first, to meet with the Lord, get in his presence. It's kind of hard. It, it, it costs something. It costs my beauty sleep. It costs me not doing some things that I would like to do that would have been really fun in my hobby that I can't do because I have to do that. It costs something. Yeah, it does. I'm reminded of uh, my senior year of high school. Um, I was a big wrestler. I loved wrestling. My life was about wrestling. And I remember at the state tournament, um, I was getting ready to go out for, if it was my quarterfinal or my semifinal match. And um, my coach came up and he was giving me a few final kind of preparatory, motivating words. And I don't know why, but I remember this very distinctly. I said to him, hey, coach, this match, it's, I had been pretty successful and had a good season. At that point, I was undefeated. I said, hey, coach, this match, it's actually going to be a pretty tough one. I'm going to have to work pretty hard. And he looked at me, and I just remember his response. He said, well, if you didn't have to work hard, Ty, it wouldn't be worth it. And I was like, oh, okay. That's true, actually. I mean, what is anything worth that's just like super easy to get? Yeah, it's not the thing that you're really excited about and pumped up about and telling everyone, oh, look what I did. It was easy to get, right? If it's the thing that's hard to get and it takes hard work and discipline and it costs you something, that's something that you're going to be proud of. It's worth getting. And as Leonard Ravenel says, an experience of God that costs nothing does nothing. It's worth nothing. It's going to take some work. Let's get back to this. We already got what Jesus do and... uh I need to go through the other two pretty quick. What'd the crowd do? Remember, they were a thumbs up. What'd they do? Well, the crowd hungered. What do you mean by that? Well, think about this. Jesus, somehow or another, gets a group of people around him, and he's teaching and preaching. I'm sure they probably knew he was out there in the wilderness, you know, and so they go, hey, you know, that guy, Jesus, remember, he's the guy that did that thing with Legion, the whole pig thing. Yeah, he's, he's out teaching. Let's go listen to him. I imagine they probably didn't take a cooler. Maybe, maybe, maybe they took a Ziploc bag with like a peanut butter and jelly and shoved fruit snacks into their pocket. But that's probably it. 
And so they get there and they realize, wow, this guy Jesus is teaching. It says in Matthew, he's doing some healing as well. But they're there and they're, and they're listening and they're being fed by the teaching of Jesus. They get done with a day and they probably at that point have a decision to make. Well, I mean, seems by all accounts like he's going to be here doing the same thing tomorrow morning. So uh, what do we do? I tail it back home. It's a 10 mile walk, not drive. Or do we camp out here tonight and stay for some more? And so presumably it seems like a large amount of the crowd stays for day two. And at day two, the ones who brought the sack lunch probably definitely don't have the sack lunch. And lunch comes around. I'm sure they're hungry. And I'm sure there's probably some villages within a few miles that they could very easily just dismiss themselves and go eat and grab themselves or whatever they're going to grab at the local village. They stick around. And they keep listening. And they keep listening. And they keep allowing the words of Jesus to fill them up. And how th- think about this, right? If you were there, like we just had uh, three days. You know, think about that though. And the second day gets done. We're going to stay again. We're going to keep listening to this man, Jesus. Are you guys hungry? Yeah. But this guy, man, he's got the goods that we need to hear. We wouldn't give it up for anything, man. I mean, think about this. Jesus said that if we were to send him back home, some of them were going to pass out. I don't think he's just speaking hyperbolically and exaggeratory. He's like, literally, these people, like, they're so hungry. If they were to make the couple trick mile trek back they wouldn't even make it and those people were like we're just hanging on every word that comes from the mouth of jesus and they stayed again so different from the crowd of the feeding of the five thousand which if you remember tried to make jesus king by force they just wanted the food right and jesus rebukes them sharply but this crowd they just seem to have this insatiable hunger this craving for more of Jesus' teaching. That's the plus. That's what I want us to have. That's what I want church to be characterized by. Jason gave a wonderful sermon, what, maybe two months ago on hunger. So I just wanted to touch on this, but if you want to talk about just kind of like quickly, a great example of people that are just hungry for the words of the Lord, for the words of Jesus. It's this crowd, it's Gentile crowd. They're like, we just want more and more and more. We're going to stick around until we get it very different from the 5,000. And notice when they stuck around, they were satisfied. Now, this is referring to Mark 8, 8, right? Jesus finally gives them food and it says they ate and they were satisfied. So yes, I think that means that they were satisfied in terms of their bellies were full and they were quite thankful and they weren't even expecting that. I don't think they were sitting around waiting like, well, day three, I've heard Jesus is going to do the miracle and do the bread fish thing. So we're just waiting for that to happen. Hopefully we don't have to wait today four or five. They weren't expecting that. It just happened. And, you know, it came to them and what a great blessing. So I think it means that they were fully satisfied in terms of their stomachs. I think there's a principle here as well throughout all of scripture that we can also extract, right? And say that Jesus also satisfies us completely and fully internally inside of us, right? That for this crowd, their hunger was met. They left with full stomachs. And their spiritual hunger was met as well. When they finally left and they were dismissed, they left with a spirit that was full, brimming over of Jesus. May we be like that. I love this verse. Just threw it in there. First Peter 2, 2 to 3, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. So by it, you might grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so just a few quick examples of this whole hungering for the word of God thing. My contemporary spiritual hero of today that I don't know, like my, oh, it'd be Michael Brown. Love that guy. And uh, hopefully he's a guy that rings a bell in terms of his name. If not, check him out, YouTube, A-S-K-D-R Brown, Ask Dr. Brown. But I always love listening to his testimony. When this guy first was converted, he talks about how his first kind of season as a Christian, every day he was memorizing, he said, 20 plus verses of scripture. Said he was reading? No, he was memorizing 20 plus verses of scripture. He said he was reading 40 chapters of the Bible a day. 
just like this hunger that was just driving him. I love that. And, you know, most people here can't do that because most of you guys have a full-time job and, you know, you're a mother that has to watch over two or three kids and you're not able to do it. So that's like a short season and time window thing. It's not like he still does that today. But let me ask you this for all of you. If you had the ability to, and some do, college students, you do. You have the ability to. If you guys had the ability to, would you do that? Would you give yourself to just hours and hours of marinating in the scripture, getting it into your mind, meditating upon it? Would you be like, yeah, get my hour in and then I'll get my five hours of Xbox in. Then I'll get my three episodes of The Office in. Would you be people that said, oh man, I got time. Yeah, all the time I have. I'm going to give to getting with the Lord. Maybe it's a video you've seen before, but uh, there's a video out there of uh, a group of believers. It's a room of believers in China. Um, and it was forgetting when exactly the video was taken, but it was a group of people that were all Christians and they didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't all at least personally have one. And there was some ministry that somehow smuggled in a bunch of Chinese Bibles and they got it to this entire room. I imagine house church, maybe type thing full of believers. And they have this box. Check it. If you just search Chinese Bible believers, whatever, it'll be like the first video that pops up. And you can see this whole room full of people. They're just like weeping and they're crying as this box of Bibles is opened up and they're passing them around the room and each person is getting it and looking at it. And they're just, they're weeping and they're kissing the Bible and they're holding it close to them. Those are people who are hungry for the word of God. May we be like that. I just, I, I watch it every now and then. I'm like, wow, right? May we not let the normalcy of a Bible sitting by us on our desk cause it to be something that we don't hunger and want more of. May the fact that we've tasted some of it not satisfy us so much that we don't realize there's more that we need to drive and push into. Brother Yoon is a great example of a guy who just hungered for more of the scriptures. And even, I thought I saw him here. Maybe he's not here, but I feel like I'd throw his name out there. If you guys don't know Seaver, you should know Seaver. He's a wonderful guy. We love Seaver. Um, he, was, he challenged me the other day and I didn't even... Tell him, but I was, uh, Seaver came over to my place a couple weeks ago and we were hanging out and he asked me a question about the book of Matthew or something about a specific verse in the book of Matthew. It was like a weird kind of off tangent question. And I was like, why are you thinking about that? Did you read through that chapter today? He's like, I read through that book today. <laughs> I was like, you read through what book? He's like, I just, Matthew. It's like, all today? He's like, yeah. I've never read through all of the book of Matthew in one day. I just haven't. So if that's a concession and now you don't want to listen to me, that's fine. Okay. But I'm like, wow, Seaver, you know, it's like casual. I've read through all the book of Matthew. He's like, yeah, I think it just, he, I, he's literally like, yeah, it takes just two and a half, three hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's right. On top of your eight to five. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I that really challenged me. I'm like, man, a guy who's just like consuming, consuming, consuming God's word, right? Maybe be people are constantly surrounding ourselves with people like that. So we're challenged by people like that. And so let's go through real quick here. What did the disciples do? They had the thumbs down. Uh, the disciples doubted. Okay. Very interestingly, Jesus is the one who mentions, hey, we should probably feed these people. He's the one who brings it up. And then the disciples answer, but where in this remote place can anyone get the food, Jesus? Verse four. And of course we read it and we're like, what the heck, right? Like, you don't remember what happened two chapters earlier, guys? But how often are we like that? where God does something and then a few weeks, a few months later, we forget and we're like, God, there's something I'm needing God to come through on. And I just don't think it's probably even possible. It's like, do you know, remember I did the same thing a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago in your life, in the life of your friend, life of someone else in our church or a living testimony of it. And so in so many ways, right, we can probably identify with the disciples 
Okay. But what were they doing? They had forgotten. They had doubt, but it stemmed from the fact they'd forgotten this huge miracle. It was actually, I guess if you just look at it quantitatively, it was a bigger miracle than the one Jesus just did. I mean, if a guy's going to multiply bread to feed 4,000, 5,000, he can probably do four, right? Whatever. But um, it's like, do you guys not remember what just happened? No, it completely must have eluded their mind. Okay. And so I'll just give one example of this because I came up with a thousand. Um, but I, the, the other day, um, I guess a couple weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, um, McKaylee and I were in a time where we had been praying and, and, and were praying a lot for the Lord to really give us wisdom and direction as to where he'd have us to go, what steps he'd like us to take next. We kind of felt like the current stage and season we were in was going to be coming to a close soon. And we've for the longest time been thinking and have our eyes set on overseas cross-cultural missions and church planting. And so we're like, God, where and to whom and what team? And and we've been praying, God, give us direction. We just kind of felt stalled and stymied because we didn't really feel like we'd been receiving anything from the Lord as direction. So we're kind of Ah, uh, man, what the heck? And um, it's like a perfect example of that because I could give you tons of examples where God very clearly gave me direction. I've been praying for it, but I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know, I guess. Maybe God's not going to really point us anywhere. And a couple weeks ago, you guys might have remembered or met uh, my friend, Andrew Day, a uh, guy who came up during prayer night on Tuesday, missionary from Chad, and said some things. And um, he was almost like literally a godsend. He was almost like an answer to that prayer. It's like it was, we'd been praying and had kind of been getting frustrated. Maybe God's not going to answer. And then like right then he came, he's like, hey, have you guys thought about this? This would be like a perfect option for you guys. And we're like, wow, that really fits in line with what we're thinking and what would be a good step. And it was like, we really respect you and trust your sort of understanding of this group and this training or this ministry. And so it was almost like we were kind of like the 12, like, God, are you really going to give us? And then God's like, yeah. And he put Andrew and God really used Andrew to kind of give us some helpful direction there. That's what God does, right? He uses natural means oftentimes to do his things. And, but I was just thinking about it, you know, with people who we know who, you know, they've went off the rails. We're praying for them. Like, Oh, they'll never come back. It's like, yeah, you thought that with the other guy too, who did. Right. I mean, I remember, you know, when we used to pray for Dom and it was almost like, yeah, he'll probably never come back, you know? And then he had that crazy experience. I think what, like five guys or whatever, and then shows up at the guy's house at the lake late at night. He's like, I want to live for the Lord. And then he strays again, what, a couple months ago. We're like, oh, it's probably just how it's going to be. It's like, did you forget what happened last time? You know, how often do we do this, right? And we need to be people who make a practice of remembering what God has done in our life and reminding ourselves why to build up and bolster our faith when we're praying to God to ask him to do the powerful, the supernatural and the miraculous. And so may we be people that do that regularly. So let's bring it home, land the plane. Big picture here. We have huge audience of Gentiles. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, big picture. Huge audience of Gentiles. And uh, they're there for a long time, three days full of hunger to hear Jesus' teaching. And Jesus moved by compassion. He feeds them. First, he met their spiritual need. Then, as well, he makes sure that their physical needs are met as well. What does this miracle mean? To, to those who were, right, as they were watching it happen, what were they thinking? What was going on? What did it mean to them? Whether it be the Gentiles or even the 12. Keep in mind, the, the 12, of course, were, were Jews and probably somewhat, you know, observant and informed Jews. Think about that Jewish audience of the 5,000. What did this miracle mean to them? It's something that I'm not going out on a limb on saying. I think a lot of other people have said and presumed, but here's what's interesting. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was doing a miracle, of course, yes, multiplying food, but I don't think it's like, so now you go out and multiply. I mean, we can maybe possibly, but what's interesting, right? We don't see a single apostle ever do it in the gospels or in the book of Acts. Though it doesn't seem to be as like crazy normative thing, right? That we should be going around trying to, praying to, giving thanks for food and asking God to multiply it. What's God doing? 
Well, Jesus is doing something here that in the Old Testament, Yahweh did. And I think back to John 6, and Jesus is like pointing that out, right? He's like, remember, God, your God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, he provided manna for your fathers in the desert when they were hungry and they didn't have anything to eat and they would have fallen over and died, he provided for them. Well, that's what I'm going to do now. You notice? I, Jesus, am doing what only Yahweh in the Old Testament did. It's like a flashing light, right? That Jesus is telling those who are seeing and observing and they're present in the miracle. He's like, do you not realize this says something about who I am? And so who is Jesus? Just do a quick one. Most people here in the family, if you're not, who is Jesus? Well, yeah, he's this guy who multiplied a lot of bread and that's pretty cool. But even much cooler, here's a guy who, as Tad had mentioned, through him, all things were created in heaven, all glory, majesty, splendor, steps out of heaven because he sees the miserable plight that all of us are in. Comes down, he lives the perfect life. The only man who ever lived a righteous life was that man, Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago. The only man who was ever innocent, and yet he was murdered as a criminal. Capital punishment put upon him. The Romans said, we're going to crucify this guy. And so there on that cross on Calvary, as we sang that hymn, I love that hymn that, that we um, sang earlier, right? It says, the wrath of God was satisfied. Hopefully we realize, I don't even have to tell everyone that everyone here in this room has sinned against God. And what you deserve because of the fact that you have rebelled against an all holy God is you deserve God's wrath poured upon you just as I do upon me. But as the song says, in Christ's death, God's wrath was fully satisfied. Right? That Jesus says, let me be your substitute. Let me take the wrath of God that is due to you. Right? So you can have the prize that I earned. That's the gospel. That's who this Jesus figure is. He's God in the flesh, who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. And that's not the end. Three days later, he miraculously, again, the greatest miracle, far greater than if I had a loaf of bread here and made it into three right in front of your eyes. Jesus rose from the dead. Just as he said he would, at the same timetable he said he would, he said, yeah, they're going to take me out. And then three days later, rise up again. Says. I have the power to lay myself down. I have the power to take my life back up again, right? John 2. That's this Jesus who we're talking about. And that's this Jesus who, if we're in the family, we need to stir up a deeper hunger for, and we need to have the compassion of. If you're not in the family, I invite you. I do. I leave an open invitation. Come on in because he's the best one out there. There's no one better out there. There's no worldview that's better out there. Right, he's sitting here. I'm giving the invitation in terms of the words, but he's sitting here saying, hey, come on in. Right? And so I'll end with this. We cannot be hungry for that which we do not behold, treasure, prize. What does behold mean? It means to observe something that is wonderful and magnificent. You're not going to hunger for Jesus if you don't look at him as wonderful and magnificent. And you can't look at something as wonderful and magnificent. You can't behold something which you don't direct your attention toward. You can't realize how great something is if you're never looking at that thing. And so Christians, if, if, that, if you like that quote, then uh, I came from me. So just wanted to say that. I literally came up with that about... Uh, 45 minutes for the service. I'm like, that's a cool one. But I, was, I didn't want to put me under it, you know, but figured I'd mention it. Um, but as Christians, as people who are in the family, as saints, as those who are called by God to be children, right? May we be people who constantly give Jesus our attention, just as that crowd of 4,000 did. Let him teach us, because that's what we need first. And after we give him our attention, Right, And we understand more of who he is. We're fed spiritually. 
may that just evoke a deeper hunger within us. And if you guys aren't in, again, uh, there's no great, greater guy to hold. There's no better, more wonderful, more magnificent individual in all of history to behold. And so he's always waiting, saying, hey, here I am. At any point, come to me, look to him, realize what he's done, say, hey, what you did is enough. And he says, come to me and give me your life. Put me in control. Make me Lord. And so hopefully from all of this, the passage, some of the things we looked at, again, Jesus, thumbs up. He did the compassion thing. The crowd, thumbs up. They did the hunger thing. The disciples, thumbs down. They did the doubt thing. Thankfully, Jesus had grace and mercy on them. Okay. Hopefully some of these things stirred, worked something in you and challenged you in some way. I'm going to go ahead and close this out in prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are, what you've done. Um, and I pray that all of us be people who hear and we do. We have ears that are inclined to hear, turn to hear, but then we be people of action as well. Um, people of application as well. And uh, yeah, Lord, um, continue to draw all of us near, take us deeper into who you are. Maybe be people who realize, Lord, that what we need first and foremost from you, Lord, is we need to be taught by you. We love you and thank you that you're always willing to do so. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.